Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Would you turn with me? Oh, by the way, good morning. Would you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9? We'll be reading uh, a few verses there, starting at verse 9 through uh, verse 13 of Zechariah chapter 9. Before we read, though, I'd like to just remind us of something. Jesus said, Take care how you hear, for to one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Jesus put it another way in in Matthew's gospel in chapter 7. He said, he who hears my words and puts them into practice is like the man who builds his house on a rock. And the person who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice, well, he's like the man who builds his house on sand. going to lose everything when you face the Lord if we don't take his word and hear it and use it. So before I read, I'd like to just take a moment and for us to be silent. That awkward silence that we Americans are uncomfortable with, I'd like you to just prepare your heart to hear from God today. So let's take a few moments and be quiet and prepare your heart to hear and ask God to help you hear so you build on the rock. Would you pray? Our Father in heaven, you're always speaking. Your heavens are always declaring your glory. The Lord Jesus' work and his salvation is always speaking as your people live and serve you and others can see. And Lord, your word that you've recorded in the scriptures, the Bible, it speaks to our hearts. It's alive and it cuts deeply into us. And so do a great work today in our hearts Speak to us, we pray, for we need to hear from you. We need you to help our hearts to hear and to use it. For your honor and glory, Lord, because you are the king and you are glorious. Help us to see more of your glory today. Let us leave here changed, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Reading from Zechariah chapter 9. Listen, it's almost like a Palm Sunday. It is a Palm Sunday passage, which is coming up very soon. Beginning at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. 
for I've bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wailed you like a warrior's sword. May God add his blessing to his word to us this morning. Zechariah had eight visions, and God gave him those visions to encourage his people that were back in the promised land, trying to scratch out a living, trying to serve their God and, and obey him, but they were discouraged and being disobedient. Sounds familiar. His prophetic messages address, Zechariah's messages address close events, future events, near and far, and it's really hard to understand sometimes. His contemporary Haggai had a great message. Get the work. Build the temple. That's what God wants you to do right now, so get busy. And Zechariah came along to encourage them to do that, to stay strong and persevere, even if they couldn't understand all that God was and would do with that temple. He was reminding them in those visions, God was, trust me. Do my work, obey me, and see what I'm about to do. Believe it's true and live as if it's true, because it is true. So now we're in chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. We're going to look at three chapters today. The last six chapters of Zechariah contain two messages. And the Hebrew word for these messages is masa, or burden. So the words that Zechariah was getting from God was to be a burden. They were to be weighty. Back when I was a teenager, which was a little while ago, we used to use the word heavy all the time. Hey, that's heavy, man. Some of you remember that. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was a hippie language. Well, this is a heavy message from God. It's a burden. So it's not all good news, as a matter of fact. There is good news in it. I mean, we just read good news, but there's a lot of bad news, dark news. It's a heavy message. It's weighty. But God wanted Zechariah to give it to the people, wanted us to hear it so that we would live differently. Do you ever feel detached from prophetic stuff? Yeah, thank you. Because it seems like, well, I'm probably going to be dead before it happens. So how does it change my life? How does it affect me now in the day-to-day -day grind uh, that I'm living right now? But it does. It, it does touch this life, and we're going to see that today. I hope I can help you see that today. Um, we may feel detached, but some of this stuff has already been fulfilled. We just read a passage of scripture that was fulfilled. And that's a marker that what is ahead, even if we don't understand it all, is going to happen too. It's going to be fulfilled in some way or form, and, and the people who need to know it are going to see it, and they can be encouraged. So we should be encouraged today that because Jesus has accomplished what he promised, what was prophesied, it's going to happen in the future, and it could be very soon. It could be very, very soon, or it might not be very, very soon. But either way, we should be encouraged. So when you run headlong into difficulties in life, remember that God's got greater good plans ahead. So hang in there and persevere. 
Or if you run headlong into really good times, maybe you're in those good times right now in your life, just remember that better good times are coming. So persevere and praise God for the good and the not so good because in the end, it's all going to be great and good. So let's take a look at chapter 9. I read the second part of that chapter, or the middle part, but it focuses on human and heavenly, the heavenly king, I should say. And we need to understand that Zechariah's prophecies are very symbolic, and because they're very symbolic, sometimes they're hard to interpret, and because they're hard to interpret, there's all kinds of different views. Of course, I have the right view. No, I don't. Zechariah's message jumps around a lot. I mean, he's living in around 500 B.C., 500 years before Jesus was born. Some of these passages seem to take place around 300 B.C. that he's talking about, and other passages talk about the time when Jesus came, the first, his first advent, and they jump right, and right alongside them are events that are described that we know are still future, and it kind of mixes us all up. But whether they're prophecies of near future or distant future, God always gives us prophecies that are fulfilled along the way so we can be assured that the word we're trusting in is true. Let me put it this way. Suppose we're taking a trip to Miami, Florida. Anybody up for that? Sounds good. Never. Well, I I was there once at the airport. So we're taking a trip to Florida, and when you start, if we start driving from Havertown, it's unlikely you're going to see any signs for Miami, Florida. You don't see any signs for Miami, Florida, so you don't even really know if you're headed in the right direction, although if you go down 95, I think you're in good shape. So you head 95 south, but you see signs for Wilmington, Delaware. That's quite a place to hang out. And then there's Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and I suppose... By the time you get to northern Florida, you see signs for how far it is to Miami. Well, those are markers along the way that God gives us, and that's the way God works. He gives us little signs. We we start in a direction, and then he gives prophecies that are fulfilled to be signs for us, markers that what's ahead, we know we're headed in the right direction. We know they're going to come true. We're on a journey. So in chapter 9, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the seas, and she shall be devoured by fire, and Ashkelon shall seed and be afraid, and Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, and Ekron also, because it hopes 
are confounded. The king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell on Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Felicia, and I will take its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant from our God, for it shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. And then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Did you get all that? Those places don't mean anything to us too much, unless we're from there or we've been there. But understand that those kingdoms were important to the Israelites, the Jewish people. They were their enemies, and they'd been conquered like Israel had been now. Assyria, you know, kind of put them in their place, and then Babylon came in and put them in their place, and now it's Persia that's going to put those little kingdoms in their place, and then down the road it's going to be Greece that's going to put them in their place, and then it's Rome that's going to be the big, the big overall empire, and we know, well, Rome's Jesus' time, so that... We have a little connection there. But just my view is, and some people agree with me, which I agree with them, put it in the right order. Historically, Alexander the Great did conquer these, these places around 300s of 300s BCs. He started beating the Persians, and that kingdom began to crumble, and he attacked Tyre. And Tyre was this rich city. It's kind of like Manhattan is to the United States. It's, it's like all the big cities where all the commerce takes place. It was proud. It was rich. It was wealthy. It was a port city. Do you know they had built their city off the mainland and, and put it on a little island off the coast of where the Middle East and the Mediterranean Sea, about half a mile out, Surrounded by water, and they built a wall like 150 feet high and 25 feet thick. They withstood five years of the Assyrians besieging them. It's kind of like, nah, 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 They did. They survived it. They survived 13 years of, of a siege by the Babylonians. Now, their economy suffered, but they survived it. So when Alexander came along and said, we're going to conquer you, they just went, you know, na 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 We think we can handle this. Alexander conquered them in seven months. And the city, like Ezekiel said, has never been rebuilt. A little marker that says, wow, God, what you said came true. I guess I should pay attention to what you say about the future. Maybe I'm living in that future time. Maybe I'm not. But I know it will come true. Be amazed. By the way, Alexander built a causeway. He used the rubble from the city they left behind to build a causeway. The city's gone. Tyre's gone. The causeway's still parts of it are there. Interesting. But now we come to, like, that's earthly kings. And what's amazing, just by the way, too, I, I kind of flew over it, but God's going to make a remnant from those conquered cities. The Philistines, there's going to be a remnant of them. It says in verse 7 that it's going to be like, they're going to be like a clan of Judah. 
Ekron's going to be like the Jebusites. Well, the Jebusites were the people who lived in Jerusalem that they never conquered until King David came along, and they were just kind of folded into the people of Israel. They became a part of them. Well, that's what all these unbelieving cities are going to be. They're going to be a remnant to God. God's going to do glorious things, and I think no oppressor going into the land of Israel. Well, we know that hasn't happened quite yet, but someday it will happen. The coming of the king to Zion. Rejoice because here he comes. Consider what he's going to do. He's going to raise up remnants from people who don't know God, but yet they're going to know God in the future. They're going to be a part of his people. Rejoice greatly because he's going to come with righteousness and justice. He's going to give salvation. He comes gently and humbly. And he's going to bring in a reign of peace. He'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim. No more, in modern day language, tanks or guns. The war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be cut off. It's going to be a reign of peace. And that word for peace is that word shalom. And it means more than no war. It means internal peace. It means prosperity. It means no more strain and stress emotionally. It's just like, can you imagine everyone being happy? Well, that's what's ahead in God's kingdom. So we have reason to rejoice. Reasons to rejoice. All these events are markers for us to believe that God's word's going to come true. And there's this huge tension. There's all this war talk. And then there's all this peace talk. How do you solve that tension? Jesus solves that tension. Because he's king and savior. He brings peace and prosperity to the world. Because he's, he died for sin, and sin's the cause of all the, all the pain and the suffering. The innocent one dies for all the guilt in. He makes them clean when, when we receive him, when we believe in him, and then we have peace with God, and we don't need to fear God. And he brings peace and prosperity to all the world because he reigns in righteousness. And one day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Every kingdom, every nation, every people group, every language group is going to confess that Jesus is the righteous king, the glorious king, the savior of the world. What are we to do in the meantime while we're waiting for Jesus to come and establish this kingdom forever? What are you to be busy doing? Philippians tells us, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what Jesus did, this coming king, this humble king. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in, was informed God and not, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. My work right now is to bring a taste 
of the coming glories of the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. I had the privilege of hearing John Perkins speak when I was in college. John, maybe you remember that. I don't know if you, he spoke at Philadelphia College of Bible, now Karen University, when I was a young man, and it impacted me greatly. And I heard him speak down in New Orleans when I was at a conference, and just an amazing man who was changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ from hate to love, coming into communities and trying to transform them with justice, the gospel of peace that touches the hurt of the soul and heartache of the soul that needs forgiveness in Christ and then the heartache that the poverty of soul often follows its physical poverty and emotional poverty and social poverty. Jesus is going to fix it and I'm to bring that kind of hope to the world we live in now. So chapter 9 describes in Zechariah all these earthly rulers that come up short, but then the king of kings who's going to come and set everything right. Just at the end of chapter 9, it says the Lord will save his people. The Lord's going to appear over them. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. And the Lord of hosts will protect them, and he will devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bull. That's describing God's people. And on that day, the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. For the, like the jewels of a crown, they'll shine on the, in the land. And for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. That's a picture of the kingdom. That's language of the kingdom. New wine and lots of grain. That's a picture of what Jesus is bringing to the world. That's a picture of what we are to bring to our world. So I just have to ask us, how have we been refreshing new wine to our towns? To bring hope where there is no hope, where there's poverty of soul and poverty of physical needs. What have we done to bring the hope of God's gospel? Well, we move on to chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. God just described what his kingdom's going to be like. There's going to be lots of grain, prosperity. There's going to be new wine. Everyone's going to be strong, prosperous. And then he says, ask for rain. Why? Because God's people were not supposed to wait for Jesus to make it happen. We're supposed to take part in bringing the prosperity to our world of soul, of salvation for our hearts and also for bodies. So we need to get to the work. So pray for rain. Pray that God would begin to uh, bring blessing to your family now. Pray for the welfare of your community now. Pray for the welfare of your neighbor now. 
Do something about it. Pray and ask and do something for the world's welfare now. He doesn't expect us to sit back and do nothing. That's why Haggai said, get busy and build. That's what God wants you to do. Get busy and build. What did Jesus tell us that we need to do? Don't you say? Let me take a step back. Yeah, don't you say. Haggai's time, the people were saying, yeah, we're supposed to be building the temple, but we don't think it's the right time. We're, we're a little, little busy. My family room's not done yet. And God said, no, now's the time to build. And then Jesus said this. Do you not say there are four months yet to harvest? It's not a good time to harvest. It's not, it's not a good time, God. And Jesus says, I tell you, no. Lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Right now. They're ripe for harvest. But we're not looking. We're doubting. We need to get busy. The harvest is ready. Get working in my fields. And then Jesus, or God, excuse me, addresses false shepherds. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, and they are afflicted, they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for the flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like majestic steeds, steeds in battle. There's God's good news. And then there's a world's news. And I'm afraid we're listening to the world's shepherds. And they're leading people astray. And we need to lead people to the true shepherd because God hates the false shepherds. In chapter 10, he describes what they're like. But he says he's against them. The Lord's against them. And he's going to raise up his people because the true shepherd, verse 4, from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow. That language might mess us up, might confuse us a little bit, but what God is saying is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, that is Jesus Christ, he's the true cornerstone. He's the true tent peg that secures our tents. He's the battle bow. He fights for his people, and he's going to make them mighty warriors. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. Picture there of the southern kingdom Judah, the northern kingdom called Israel or Joseph, I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. In verse 8 it says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. In verse 9 he says, though I scattered them among the nations, yet I shall remember them, and their children will live and return. Verse 10, I will bring them home. I will bring them to the land. Verse 11, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves. Verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord. He's already doing that. The church, Gentiles and Jews coming together in Christ, being raised up 
being saved, prosperous, fulfilled in life, serving our God together. I believe God's going to raise up Israel again as a nation, gathering the Jewish people to himself. Some people think that's happening in the church age. But I just lean hard that God has promises to keep to the Jewish people that he hasn't fulfilled yet that are described in Zechariah. But however it works out, we're not going to be arguing about who was right in their prophetic view. We're all just going to be worshiping God and saying, I can't believe everything you've done to bring glory to your name and how you saved your own people, the Jewish people and Gentiles and brought us together all because of Christ. When you're reading Zechariah and confused, Just remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And see how much that good shepherd the Lord is to his people, the things he's describing here, taking care of his sheep. When you're reading Psalm 46 and think about God's promises that he's an ever-present help in trouble, that he's a fortress, then we know we can be still and know that he's God. So this prophecy stuff, even if we don't understand it all, it does really connect with life now. When we're reading Psalm 121, it says, he neither slumbers nor sleeps, but he's always watching over you. He's the keeper of your life, both now and forevermore. Understand that what he's describing in Zechariah, even if we don't have all the details and can't figure it all out, it's going to happen and we're going to experience because he is the good shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. All who've come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep And the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish So Zechariah's message overall so far has sounded pretty good. The good shepherd's going to be taking care of his people. They are going to be oppressed, but he's watching over them. He will save remnants of Jews and Gentiles. He's going to bring them back to the land, and they're going to rejoice, and they're going to be prosperous. All these good things are going to happen. And then we come to chapter 11, and it starts with a whale. And when there's a whale mentioned in the Not a fish whale, but a W-A-I-L whale. Whoa, is me kind of whale? It's not good news. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. 
Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. The kings are wailing and the lions are wailing because the woods are gone, the forests are gone. There's no animals around to eat. There's nothing to be, no profits to be made by all the great timber that was there. Bad news. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. So God's asking Zechariah now in chapter 11 to role play. And he says, I want you to be a good shepherd. But you need to go to sheep who are doomed. <laughs> the flock is marked for slaughter, it says in verse 6, in verses 4 through 6. And that's not a good outcome. And when did that happen? Well, we know the destruction of Jerusalem. It certainly happened then when that, those people living in that time were destined for slaughter. They rejected their savior. They rejected their shepherd. The good shepherd, it says. And then there's the ultimate rejection in, in verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I have priced, been priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Prophecy fulfilled by Christ. 30 pieces of silver. Basically what, what God was telling Zechariah to do, I want you to play, act like you're the good shepherd and the good shepherd is rejected betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver was the price that was paid for a slave that was gored by an ox. You can read that in the law in Exodus. So that's what a slave was valued at. So that was quite an insult. Zechariah said, pay me what you think I'm worth. I'm a prophet of God. And they agreed that he was giving them the word of God. Give me the price that you think I'm worth as a man of God, as a prophet of God, speaking the word of God that's come true. Well, we'll give you the price of a slave. Minimum wage, basically, so to speak. Now jump ahead 500 years, 530 years or so, and that's what the Lord of the universe was betrayed for. How much are you worth, Lord Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. But isn't it ironic that he came to be a slave for us? To be a servant for us, a willing servant? He was willing to pay the price. The ultimate insult actually is turned into something glorious the Lord of the universe dying for our sins, serving obediently his Father's will. Later on in the chapter, Zechariah is asked in verses 15 through 17 to now play role 
or act out the role of the bad shepherd, the wicked shepherd. Let me just read those verses at the end of the chapter. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in that land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones and tearing off even their hoofs. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utter, utterly blinded. This is the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit that's alive in the world today. The anti-savior, the false rulers who have come to destroy, to kill, to maim, to take advantage, to rule over us without care. There's been countless thousands, hundreds of thousands of rulers for the years who have acted like this. Roman emperors, Hitler, Stalin, the list just goes on and on. But notice powerful rulers come and go. I guess there's one great leader of the world to come, the Antichrist. It was Bill Clinton a few years ago. And then probably Hillary, except she didn't fit. And now some people might think it's somebody else, and we won't go into all that. But they will be done away with. They're going to be cursed by God. When the true shepherd comes, the wicked are not going to be able to stand. They're going to be wailing like they were at the beginning of chapter 11. When unrepentant sinners refuse Christ, they reject the good shepherd, they betray him, bad things are going to happen. Wicked rulers are cursed from God. And Christ cannot be rejected forever. The Jewish people rejected their, their Messiah. Jesus wept over Jerusalem when he entered it because he was being rejected. They were rejecting the one who came to save them and see what has happened to those people. So when nations, when I personally and nations turn against God, go our own way, ignore his rules and his commands, reject his Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, good will not come. Only hardness, or only difficult times, hard times. But there's a lot of encouraging truths here as well. We can reject the notion that we need to reject Christ, instead receive him. We can receive his gift of forgiveness. We can be empowered by him. We can begin to do the work that God's called us to do. Like Will's hero, John Perkins, has done. Probably should be a hero for me, too. He actually is. We can be those heroes for the next generation that will step up and serve our great God. We can start to begin to bring Jesus' spiritual renewal and prosperity and his physical peace into the world now, right where we are, as we humbly serve our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father and God, Take your word. Let us see visions of your glory. 
and help us to love and serve you as you've called us to do. We ask this in the name of our Savior, the Good Shepherd, the one who is faithful and true. Do your work in our hearts and lives and let us do that work for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.